they call my mom at work, I'm, I'm doomed. We're all doomed, Bug. It's the human condition. The next life's the thing to focus on. It's Melanie Pratt. Wants me to pray with her. You wanna come? I'll be with Father Pratt. Oh, right. Well, God hears you, wherever you are. If things get too hot, just turn on the prayer conditioning. Secret Cinema. Secret Cinema. Hi everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of The Secret Cinema, a podcast hosted by me, Paolo Carone, and my co-host, Carrie Chafee. Every week on this podcast, we're going to discuss and try to learn from films good, bad, and weird that have largely gone undiscussed or forgotten by cinephiles and the general film-going public. For our first episode, we're covering Wes Craven's 2010 horror thriller, My Soul to Take. Some quick notes for this episode. Carrie and I recorded pilots for three different films as sort of a warm-up for doing this podcast. And while this discussion is by far the best of the three, we were still figuring out the format at the time, so please excuse the sometimes awkward pacing and really, really lame jokes, especially from me. Uh, additionally, this episode was recorded several months before Wes Craven's death, so if you're a Wes Craven fan, my apologies for starting off our podcast with a thorough mocking of one of his final films and his career in general. Carrie and I recently watched The People Under the Stairs, and we loved it. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite movies. I put in the general pantheon of my favorite movies. But I still stand by our comments in the discussion. Uh, not unless Craven fans, though. You should still go watch his films and make up your own minds. Anyway, here's Carrie Chafee with a quick plot summary for My Soul to Take. Seven teenagers in Riverton are about to celebrate their 16th birthday. But everyone else is about to celebrate the 16th anniversary of the death of Abel Plinkov, Riverton's schizophrenic serial killer. One of the seven teens, Bug, starts to wonder whether Abel is really dead, and the Riverton Seven find that 16 might not be so sweet. So, due to the style of our discussion, we like to play some clips beforehand to give you some context, in case you're not familiar with the film that we're covering. We have three clips for My Soul to Take. Uh, the first one is the death scene for the character Brandon. Brandon is the boyfriend of the character Brittany, and in this clip he thinks he's talking on the phone with her, uh, but it's actually just the killer. Brandon does have an unborn child, so that when that gets referenced, that's not just a non-sequitur, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the main reason I wanted to play this clip is to illustrate the general sloppiness and stupidity of the screenplay, uh, especially the dialogue. Here's that clip. <sighs> Sorry. It's too late to be sorry. Who is this? Someone from your past you wouldn't remember. Put uh, Brittany on, please. She's not here. Well, where is she? Where you're gonna go. I'm gonna go uh, to the church. No, you're not. What do you mean, no, I'm not? <laughs> Think hotter. Miami? Try hell! Anybody you want to say goodbye to? My unborn child. 
your fucking unborn child. Now where'd I leave your bitch? Now, our second clip illustrates someone we spend a ton of time discussing in the episode, Fang. The high school alpha female who factors into the plot in a fairly strange manner. Uh, in this clip, Fang, who is being introduced to the viewer at this point, talks with Brittany about Bug. Now, based on what you hear in this clip, what exactly do you learn or assume about Fang? And by the way, this clip also involves a phone, as Bug and his friend Alex are eavesdropping, so those are the male voices you're going to hear. Uh, and I botched his name in the episode, I'm going to botch it again here, but Alex is played by John Magaro, Magaro uh, one of those two, who ended up being really great in both Carol and The Big Short, uh, so he's someone to really keep an eye out for in the future. But here's that clip. What's her story anyway? She's obsessed with Bug. Girls find him attractive. Huh? Do you? What? Find Bug attractive. No, of course not. Sorry. He's lunatic, Brittany. A brain bomb waiting to go off. His only real friend is Dunkelman, and Dunkelman just uses him as his monkey. He's been in and out of institutions half his life. Bug has killed people. Killed people? Wake up and smell the Starbucks. You're right. He's pathetic. Brandon's the one for you, Brett. He's a diamond in the rough, I'll admit, but a diamond just the same. By comparison, Bug is a lump of coal. Trust me on this. Okay, thanks. Our last clip depicts Bug and Alex's school presentation on condors because this film is obsessed with condors to a hilarious degree. Despite the heightened music and gasping that you're hearing on the soundtrack, all that's happening on screen is Bug giving his report and Alex running amongst the desks in a large condor costume, so please don't mistake this for an exciting scene. Trust me, it is not. Here's that clip. Our subject today is the largest bird in North America. Unchanged since the Pleistocene Epoch and only recently rescued from extinction. I present to you, Gymnogyps, Californianus. Anis. Brandon, second warning. The California condor. Good Lord. Are you ready? Fly now. His wingspan is 10 feet wide. His body more than four feet high. He can weigh as much as 350 parrots. As for soaring, he can glide effortlessly for days until he finds his food, which is carrion. A dead, stinking body crawling with maggots is ice cream to him. Bug. Just showmanship, Mr. Kaiser. The facts are correct. And now, our discussion of my soul to take. All right, so... Carrie, where where do we start with this? What 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 element do we talk about first? <laughs> um, gosh, I think we need to answer some of the why questions. Yeah. Okay. There's so many questions that this movie makes you think of. You are just sitting there in the audience, thinking, "But why? <laughs> why?" I guess. Okay. I guess let's just try to like. One of the things that was in my mind just trying to do during the movie was figure out 
the series of events, if they were presented in chronological order without trickery to hide like plot twists and things. But even if you do that, the mythos of the film and the mythos of the ripped ripper doesn't make sense in that. There's there's so many things that they're trying to do and all of them cancel each other out. Yeah. To the point where it just like the film is just chaos. But not that interesting of chaos. I don't know. It's to me it's really interesting, but it's because it's so like there's dead ends and like red herrings and things that like I mean Dead teenager movies, and this is definitely a dead teenager movie. It's made by Wes Craven, who did Nightmare on Elm Street and, and Scream, and basically, like, many of the most famous dead teenager movies. And, like, Nightmare on Elm Street has its crazy effects and everything, yeah. but the point is still, it's, there's a series of teenagers who are going to die, and there's a reason. Actually, now that I think about it, Nightmare on Elm Street is the same plot as I saw the take. Think about it. I just Well, and you saying that, it made me think, oh, Final Destination is the same plot as Nightmare on Elm Street. No, because... Well, but sort of, because it's a group of teenagers who are going to die. Well, it's a dead teenager. That's yeah. the whole... But it's, it's not the same, because... Well, no, the reason. Yeah. Well, the reason Nightmare on Elm Street is the same as my soul to take is because it's about a killer who died a long time ago, yep. and the children of the people who were around when the killer died are suffering, and he's going after them. And yeah. that's like, that's, so it's, there's like a little so bit of difference, but Wes, it's like blatantly. So yeah. Wes Craven has two ideas ever yeah. and he wrote them and then he was like, well, what if I just rewrite that first idea again, yeah. but for 2010. Yeah. <laughs> and include some flip open cell phones. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> I think I have to come out and say this flat out. Um, I don't think Wes Craven is a good director. We've gone through about. 12 of his movies in the past year, really. Like, we've gone through a lot of them. Yeah. And with the exception of Hills Have Eyes, and, I mean, the screen movies are all right, but I wouldn't dare call them good movies. Yeah. Um, with that exception of Hills Have Eyes, he doesn't have a good movie. He is just basically... Well, yeah, he's, he's got some really bad movies. Vampire in Brooklyn was just oh, god-awful. Yeah, and I will also acknowledge I'm not... I haven't watched Nightmare on Elm Street recently enough, so I know I'm sure I'm pissing somebody off. But I, I trust me, as great as you think Nightmare on Elm Street is, it isn't that great. Um, <laughs> but, Preach. Yeah. Uh, but okay, so... He is ripping off his own movie. And that kind of <laughs> distracts me from whatever led me to that thought. But okay, so let's... Just let's start with, like, the, the first scene. The, um... The... Ba I, they're kind of... The when, serial killer? This, yeah, when, um... When Abel, the serial killer, is basically introduced. I... God, there's so much... There's so much going on. Okay, well, just, like... <laughs> shit. Yeah, okay, where do we start? Here, here's where we start. What is the rule with souls in this movie? What is going on? Because the whole movie revolves around souls and how souls work, according to Haitians. The first, <laughs> the first rule of my soul to take is there is no rules regarding souls. Rule number that... two, no outside food. <laughs> so they set up in the first ten minutes of the movie that there may be multiple souls... But then they don't follow that up with that claim up with any kind of proof or like you. No, because Bug gets every soul in him. 
Eventually. Eventually. But they only state that at the very end of the movie. But it's kind of set up during the movie uh, where, like, he'll, he'll talk in someone's voice, like, sure. right after Penelope dies, he's like, you know Melanie is pregnant. She's in my prayer class. And then, like, to the <laughs> principal. Uh, but, okay, the reason I bring that up, too, because, okay, sure, maybe that, but also, <laughs> if you remember, they kind of say that... Or they allege that Abel has multiple... Because the, the cop says he has multiple personalities. Like when they're taking him in the ambulance. And but he actually has multiple yeah, souls. The Haitian, the Haitian woman says, in Haiti, we believe that people don't have personalities. They have souls. And when you die, a personality dies. But when you die, a soul lives on. And so they kind of set up this idea that each of, of Abel's personalities in which he doesn't have seven personalities in the opening scene. He has two personalities. But apparently he has seven. And when he dies, which doesn't happen on screen, um, those seven... Yeah, they never find his body. Yeah, what a cheat. They, like, really cheat you on that yeah. But, okay, once he dies, they... Each of his soul personalities becomes one of the seven kids. And so, first, first question, because I have a lot of questions here. Yeah. First off, are each of the kids the personality? Or are they a different facet of his personality? Yeah, are they supposed so to... So, was one of the facets of his personality blindness? Yeah, exactly. Blindness, <laughs> uh, religiosity, um... Well, I think... I think there's... Making a, cool costumes. Making also. cool costumes. I think that there is a religious personality because of the fact that they needed to tie it back into that poem, uh, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, we'll, we'll get into religion in a second. Because that's yeah. a whole other thing. Because I have another thing with the souls real quick. Okay. okay. Assuming like what I said about each of the souls is a personality, is Alex... Is Alex an actual person, or is he always the the killer? For a second, I forgot which one was Alex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're talking about Not Fade Away. Not Fade Away, right? the box. Uh, John Angarano. I'm totally butchering his name. I think Ang it's, it's Magario. Magari? No, there's no Magaro. way. Magaro. Magaro. It's not, yeah. Well... Anyway, John, John, so, John, Johnny. I think Alex is his own personality, but he has, on his 16th year, been invaded by Abel's personality. Where, or, or, I'm sorry, not personality. I'm saying personality when I mean soul. Okay. But he isn't, so he's invaded by it. Because. But, okay, but so that leads to my next question, which is, if... Abel's soul survived 16 years, and presumably the dad died. If the body, yeah, what was so, his soul doing for 16 years? Yeah. Just woo, it was just woo, it was, over the bridge. It was just hanging out in the river. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's like, okay. So if God, it's taking forever to address these questions, but it's that it's that confusing. Um, if that if the soul just was like hanging out when the guy died, he was just like hanging out for 16 years. When Bug kills Alex, where, where does, does the soul go? go? <laughs> Good question. They act, they act at the end of the movie like it's just over. And yeah. they by their own rules, it's not over. <laughs> by the rules established in the movie, it doesn't... He's, he's still alive. What if his... Yeah, because 
no matter what, the soul lives on, according to that Haitian woman at the beginning. So his soul is going to survive for another 16 years? Do you think Wes Craven was like, yeah, this will be my next franchise? Oh, oh my God. It, that's the only way it makes sense. But everybody dies. <laughs> yeah. Everybody dies. Even in Scream, Courtney Cox and David Arquette still They alive. always look. And uh, what's her face? Um, oh, oh no, Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell, yeah. yeah. Okay, so... That's the core of the movie. The backbone of the movie right there doesn't make any sense. Um, but so I'm, the log- the soul logic is the soul problem. <laughs> the soul problem? All right. But, but, but that's not true. There's so many problems. And here's the thing. Here's a good thing we can piggyback off of, uh, and we're going to have to do a lot of explaining for this, but the reason we know, or at least have so many theories about the soul thing is because the movie decides to help us along with that symbolism thanks to condor-related symbolism. (laughs) (laughs) This is really the part that secures this movie for me as, like, a a totally baffling ordeal. It's the condor stuff. I really do think that Wes Craven was spending a lot of time at the library and he was looking at books about birds. Maybe he picked up bird watching as a hobby. He was getting older. He's getting older. Yeah. And he learned about the condor and he he just, you know, put his hand on his chin and thought, "You know what? Maybe I should include condors in my next movie." Yeah. Okay. So when it's introduced, when it's the first time condors come up, um Alex and Bug are talking about a project they have due. uh, Which they haven't done, but is due the next day on their birthdays. Also, I just, also one of the things that escaped me until the other movie, I'm sorry I'm jumping, but um, the movie basically takes place over one day. But it, yeah. it's, like, edited in a way where it's, like, so easy to forget that. And it, keep, <laughs> and it keeps going into, like, places that are, like, like the pool is, like, in the middle of the night. And then it's, like, they cut from the pool to being, like, 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. And also, there's, like, a four-hour daylight period before school starts. Yeah. Stuff like that. Where it's just, like, time doesn't make any sense in this. But, okay, anyway. So... Alex and Bug have a project at school due during the main day of the movie uh, on California condors. And they have to get the project done. They've completely forgotten to do it until the night before. And so the night before the thing is due, Bug is in his room and he's like building it out of like jars and a bike helmet and just like shit that I don't know how and he has And plastic water bottles yeah. that he just happens to have in he his room. All this stuff. Wait, I just thought of something. So Alex doesn't help with this school project whatsoever. Good point, yes. So maybe the evil soul was already in him because he's such a dick that he wouldn't help his friend with his school project. I mean... It was both of their birthdays, and he was like, you know what, man? You do the project. That's cool. I don't need to do it. My stepfather's an asshole, so that's my excuse. God, and I just realized Alex is watching The Birds. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was. But, okay, so, Bug is listening to, like, the radio. Like, some terrible NPR imitation in whatever place this is taking place. Oh, Dr. Cooper, this is so fascinating. Yeah, Dr. Richard Cooper is being interviewed, whose expertise lies in condors and he wrote a book called keeper of the souls which basically in his interview he says when a condor eats somebody it uh or somebody it it takes their soul it takes their soul and so it just collects 
souls and it becomes smarter that way. And he's not saying, like, Native Americans believe this or anything. He's saying, like, this is what condors do. Also, and, he hasn't cited <laughs> any scientific research. Yeah, it's just, and the woman is just like, this is fascinating. <laughs> this is amazing. Tell me more. But, um, so he's listening to this and... I mean, like, what on earth could this possibly have to do with other than setting up the plot? It's so insanely yeah. specific and weird. And also, I love that at the end of the interview, the guy says to the interviewer, she, well, the interviewer asks him, like, does the condor have a defense mechanism? And he's like, well, it does, but I can't repeat it here. <laughs> like, something <laughs> like that. Because when they do the project the next day... Um, in class. In class... Um, Alex puts on the costume Bug made, which is this, like, ridiculously... There's no way he made that in one night. Yeah, but it's, like, this life-size condor outfit that has, like, feathers and articulated joints. And I think he <laughs> cut up an umbrella and painted it so it looked like wings. And it looks exactly like wings. So it looks like feathers. <laughs> yeah, somebody in the production department of that movie spent... Hours upon hours making that costume. Yeah, and uh, and uh, so they're they're doing the presentation, and he's and Bug is giving this crazy speech where he's like, "The Condor can do anything, and it walks in death," and just like very overly dramatic uh, delivery. As Alex, oh, Bug is doing this as Alex walks. Alex, like, flies through the classroom as yeah. the condor, and people are, like, <gasps> screaming. And it's just their classmate. It's just their classmate. Classmate in a classroom. Also, there's, like, 16 people in the class. But, and they're teenagers. Teenagers who definitely don't give a shit about this. No. But they're, like, freaking out about it. And Brandon, who is the jerk uh, personality, uh, he he's in class with them, and he's been picking on Bug and Alex up to this point, and he's just, like, uh, California condor. California penis birds or something like that. He's just like <laughs> shittily criticizing them under his breath. And at one point, Bug, uh, Bug says, um, a California condor can eat an entire cow in one day. And Brandon goes, bullshit. Like it fucking, like he has to posture to be cooler than even a condor. Like, I call bullshit on your presentation. Yeah. So I'm the smartest one in class. <laughs> but he's not that smart because no. once he challenges them, Alex walks up. <laughs> Alex walks up with the costume. And after some a couple more lines, there's some parts in the costume that spews exorcist green vomit out of the costume through like clearly a series of like pumps and stuff that couldn't again i don't know how he could have built this costume but it spews vomit all over brandon and so this he gets in a fight with alex and starts beating him up and so bug is like alex use the other defense mechanism or whatever the line is and poop shoots out of the back of the costume did you notice that the teacher wasn't upset at all? He, he was, was only upset because they got in a fight. Pretty much, yeah. He didn't care about the vomit that was all over his classroom now, or the, the fake poop that was everywhere all over but the floor. But is it fake poop, though? Yeah, well, because yeah, who there, knows? There's a girl, because there's a girl, right when the poop starts coming out, who's like, ugh, and she starts, like, waving in front of her, and Bug starts gagging, and he gets to the bathroom, and Alex even asks him, like, were you able to throw up? And he's like, no, I can't throw up. But why... Unless it was real poop, why would anyone be gagging or throwing up? It would just be, like, liquid shooting out. Maybe uh, Bug 
was going to throw up because he was nervous about the presentation or something. Yeah, but it's a little too late for that. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, yeah. But, so, I mean, condors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, and there's like, oh, also, there's a scene where Bug's mom is is having a meeting with the principal, and the principal's like, why is Bug so obsessed with these buzzards? It's so stupid. And Bug's mom says... It's not a buzzard. It's a condor. Condors are beautiful creatures. The Native Americans used to worship them. And she starts citing all of these facts. Why does she know about condors? <laughs> There's no reason. Unless she helped Bug with his project, which we know she didn't do. Because she didn't know about the suit that he was bringing to school. Why does she know all about condors? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, also, it's un unexplainable. There are some ridiculous cutaway shots to condors flying in the sky. Oh yeah, definitely. All stock throughout footage. the movie. <laughs> God. Uh, okay. <laughs> Another major flaw of this movie is the screenplay. Well, we we've been kind of getting into that. But... Well, yeah, but the main thing that I kept picking up on is how Wes Craven would reveal information about each character. So, at one point, Brandon, the bully, he's talking to Bug, and he's like, Bug, it must be scary to live in a house with no father. And that's the first moment where you learn that Bug doesn't have a father. Yeah. But why did we learn it that way? Why would Brandon say that to him? Also, what does having a father have to do with your house being scary or not? There's a lot of stuff like that. Remember in the scene, right, in the nights before the the day that everything takes place, when they're at the, the creek uh, doing the, the service in memory of the, the, yeah. the Ripper, oh, the police show up and they all, all the boys scatter behind a log and they're all, they all start having this conversation where they're talking about the Ripper as if none of them have ever heard of the Ripper before and they have to explain it to each other. Even though three of the four boys... No, no, three of the three boys... Four of the four boys. Four of, four, <laughs> four of the four boys have their birthdays on the day that the Ripper was killed. All right, and this actually, this is another thing kind of relating to this um, issue of bad screenplay, is what <laughs> what happened in the 16 years between the serial killer dying and everyone being in town now? Because, I ask that because nobody's relationships make sense at all. No one has, like, everything has to be explained to us, and so no character development really happens, and no one really has like, a backstory that ties into what happened. Like, except for... May. Except for, well, May and, and Leah, but... Uh, oh, yeah, Leah. But, like, yeah, they just really... It seems like one of those movies where everyone was born and they were kept cryogenically frozen until they were until their 16th yeah, birthday. Yeah, how did Bug not know until his 16th birthday that, one, his... Mother wasn't his biological mother. Two, that his biological father was the town's only serial killer. How did the whole entire town not tell him right away? Well, and remember, too, they said every, literally everybody knows about him. <laughs> but the bully who punches him uh, for his, like, when his, uh, because, like, people tell the bully to and he goes and punches them. 
the bully beats up on him and picks on him for not having a dad and says he's going to die. But he does. Stuff. But he fails to mention that his dad's a serial yeah. killer. What, I mean, what, that seems like the easiest point. Bully one hundred and one. Yeah, got a kid for his absent murderer father. Yeah, like your mom. Yeah, you need a point to jab. Just jab at the wound of serial murder dad. Yeah. What are you going to do? Freak out and kill me just like your dad? Like that? It's so easy. <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> what a wasted opportunity there. Man. Also, his dad's name, his serial killer dad's name was Abel. There's so many good puns he could have made as a bully with the name Abel. Like, hey, bug, do you think you'll be able to make it? <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. That was not that was not good first draft, but you get it. All I can think of when you point out Abel is that Abel was the killer, not the killer, but the fake out killer in Veronica Mars. Oh, you're right, Abel Coots. But that doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Is Abel is never a nice just, person's yeah, name. Yeah, Cain and Abel. <laughs> Wait, did Cain kill Abel? Though? I can't ever remember which one killed <laughs> yeah. which. I think one of them turns into a pillar of salt. That's Lot's wife. Which, oh. but let's take that. Let's use this to segue into religion in this movie. <laughs> we sounded super smart. Yeah. Then. <laughs> religion. Religion. I want to know. Can Penelope actually talk to God? (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe that's the aspect of her soul. That she has a divine connection. What if she also is crazy? But what if she is the innocent soul? That would make sense. I guess on the movie's logic, I could believe that. (laughs) <laughs> it's just there's so much it's stuff too, there's it, so much stuff where he, there's where she's like oh i i i spoke with him should we <laughs> should we talk about the prayer conditioning comment well yeah i mean there well yeah. there you go penelope says um if it gets hot turn up turn on the prayer conditioning something like that yeah really just horrible hacky religious one but um she's one of the best characters yeah she really is and she like I mean, full disclosure, we are, we know, uh, we have a friend of a friend of the actress who plays Penelope, and so we're biased toward her. But seriously, though, she is really good in this movie, especially compared to everybody else, because she seems to, like, actually try to make her backstory her character, and so when she dies, it's so confusing because they, like, it seems like she's really important, and then she's just not. And here's another thing. So she dies at the pool where she was praying with the principal's daughter because the principal's daughter got knocked up by Brandon, the bully. Another subplot that is worthless. Oh yeah, completely doesn't pay off because the pregnant principal's daughter never shows up ever again after Penelope is murdered. She just completely disappears. But anyway, so Penelope is praying with the principal's daughter. They're in the middle of a prayer and all of a sudden, Penelope hears something, so she gets up and leaves in the middle of the prayer. And, <laughs> and she, the, on the soundtrack, you can still hear the girl praying. Yeah, she's still <laughs> praying. And Penelope goes into this back closet, and she sees someone, and then she runs out, and she's she comes back to an empty pool where nobody's there. The principal's daughter's gone. I don't know where she went. And then she, Penelope gets murdered, slits, slit throat. Okay, here's my my thing. Then, the next time we see Penelope, she is dead 
hanging out at the burnt ambulance that's in the middle of the woods. Yeah. How the hell did Alex get Penelope out to the woods and position her perfectly with nobody noticing. Yeah. In broad daylight. In broad daylight. And this On a school day. On the anniversary of that serial killer's death. Not to mention it's an impulse killing and he gets her body there within an hour. And he doesn't leave a trail of blood. There's even blood by her when he finds her body. There's only blood on her neck. Yeah. Though, in all fairness, in, when he slits her throat at the pool, he kind of just, like, cracks her neck open and just, like, shakes her blood out <laughs> into the pool, practically. Yeah. There's a, there's some CGI blood in this. Oh, ridiculous. Although, I also would like to remind you that this movie was shown in theaters in 3D. Yeah. And I kept an eye out for 3D elements, and I couldn't spot a single one. Yeah. It's I, usually... and. Granted, usually when they do it, it's more gratuitous. I always think of Friday the 13th 3D as the worst example where people are like, there's like a kid playing baseball and he holds the baseball bat behind his back so the end of the baseball bat comes out at you where it's like, who gives a shit? Why is that 3D? <laughs> they don't even bother to do that level of 3D no. in this movie. It must have just been like, oh wow, there's depth in this otherwise I wonder if it, movie. I wonder if it was shot in 3D... Or afterwards, they were like, I wonder if we can get more people to come if it's in 3D. I think they were like, this piece of garbage won't sell any tickets unless it's in 3D. Ah. Because it has no famous people in it. The most famous person in it is is Jessica Hecht, who is a bit role on Breaking Bad. And I'm sure she's in other things. I'm doing great disrespect to her, but she's the most famous person in the movie. Yeah. Uh, There's no audience draw. Um... Man, um, okay, um, while we're talking about characters that don't make any sense and how bad the screenplay is, Jerome, the blind character who... Man, I forgot who yeah. Jerome was already, yeah. Jerome, too. the black character who hilariously doesn't die first, but still has a pathetic death. Just the oh, yeah. most useless death. But he is blind, and it's established that he can he can hear really well, But and they kind of show him with a cane in his hand, but they never really show him being blind like he doesn't have sunglasses he doesn't use his cane to walk around there's shots where he's like walking backwards away from people (laughs) and keep walking he just kind of has like a squint um and then when he dies uh that's it that's the end of his arc there's i mean oh yeah he has no character development other than he's blind (laughs) other than he's blind and him being blind doesn't matter (laughs) and and that he shares a birthday with all the other characters in the movie but just like um, the other minority character, the, um, Jay. Jay, okay, so Jay gets murdered. And really quickly, Jay's defining element is that he made costumes. That's his personality. Yeah, he makes cons- costumes, he is of Asian descent, and so he gets murdered the night before everybody's birthday. You could say maybe on the birthday because it's after midnight, but... He's walking home on this bridge, which evidently everybody lives near this bridge. Yeah. And he's walking home, and he gets thrown off the bridge and murdered. Nobody notices the next day at school that he's not there. No, but literally nobody. They don't talk about it until after the school day is over. Yeah, and then they're like... But the six other people who happen to share his birthday 
all notice that each other are there, but they don't care that Jay's not there. Yeah. They're like, well, whatever. There's seven of us that have a birthday today, but only six of the seven came to school. No big deal. Yeah. Well, and who's who's the... Okay, the only other character we haven't mentioned of the seven oh, is, is Brittany. Brittany. Who, uh, now that I think about it, I her what is her, her trait? Is that... Her trait is that she's a girl. <laughs> I think like, her, her trait is that she... Uh, is a, a forced bitch. She's in a posse of girls, and the posse she's in, she's not allowed to be herself because if she is herself, then she'll get kicked out of the posse. It's like a power, power play type group. And so she has to be a bitch to be in the posse. Right? I guess, but she's still like relatively reasonable and they kind of seem to be setting up like a love triangle thing between yeah. like with her and bug and brandon and again that goes nowhere because she dies and brandon dies and bug doesn't have uh, any love interest type stuff because penelope also seems to like him and that only pays off to the extent that like penelope feeds him information but her information doesn't help him at any point other than to be ready <laughs> like she's like it's coming and he's like it's gonna come it's gonna happen yeah that's about it um wait on that note with Brittany, so Brittany's power posse is ruled by a girl named fang fang okay R really let's really, talk yeah. about fang let's just go through fang's everything because everything about fang sums up the just the total mess that this I, movie yeah is. i think fang is the epitome of what's wrong with this movie. All right. Do you want to start? Do you want to get into it? I will start. <laughs> so, Fang is the daughter of the serial killer, Abel. Fang's real name is Leia. And Leia, when she's three years old, she sees her serial killer dad murder her pregnant mother and almost murder... A cop. And, oh, and her as well. And her as well. She almost gets stabbed in the back by her dad. So, you don't know that Leia is Fang until like almost... an hour. Yeah, yeah, until almost the end of the movie. Like half, like a little past halfway, but still like very far into the movie. Yeah. So, Fang is this 19-year-old high school girl who rules the school, she kind of lays down the law of who's cool and who gets punched at lunchtime and uh, what the, the who should date who and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like she, Fang tells Brittany she has to date Brandon. She, Fang is, oh my god, what is her, that character's name from Mean Girls? Oh, she's Regina? Yeah, Fang is Regina George. But she's but, like goth chic Regina yeah, George. Goth chic, manipulative, bitchy Regina George. Which so, all of those goth things. Goth chic Regina yeah. George. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but here's Fang's damage. Her dad is a serial killer. Does everyone else in the town know that her dad's the serial killer? Is that why she became so powerful? Because people felt bad for her? And, I mean, I feel like I'm giving this movie a lot of credit. Yeah, actually, you know what? I genuinely did not... I, I have no guess as to what anybody thinks of Fang. 
Because, like we said before... I think that's the problem. Nobody thinks about Thang, and that's why she's so uh, angry. But, th- I mean, think. put it this way. Um, with Thang, we can't even make a guess as to what the town thinks about her or anything. Because even though she's Bug's sister, and she's the daughter of the serial killer, and she's pretty integral to the plot well, later on, during the first hour... Every scene she's in or every scene where she's mentioned, she's just this really mean high school girl. Yeah. And people talk to her about her brother. Or, like, she's there for conversations about her brother. But but again, you don't know that they are brother and sister until almost the end of the movie. Yeah, and and so when they talk about, uh, when she'll be like, why would you want to go out with Bug? And like that. And it'll just be, like, totally ambiguous. They'll play it. They won't play it in a way where it's like, What's going on? There's another dimension to it. They'll just, like, play it flat. And they'll just, like, leave... They just... The way the dialogue bounces off of the characters, there's... They're just... It's so vague, but not vague in a clever way. Just vague in, like, they're deliberately fucking with you. Like, okay. There's a scene where Fang sends Brandon to beat up or punch Bug and Alex. And even during that scene, everybody... Brandon knows that Bugs, the the brother of Fang, who bosses him around, again, if he's a bully, uh, why wouldn't he make fun of him for the fact that his sister (laughs) fixed on him? Yeah, but also, why if Brandon's a bully, why wouldn't he bully Fang? Yeah, why would she's? I mean, she's older than because she's nineteen. They uh, they mention that she's been held back, Um, but yeah, they mention that. She is 19 years old, but otherwise she's just like a scrawny high school girl. And yeah. he's like a jock. He's, they say he's the head of the football team, right? Brandon is Who head knows? of the football team. I believe They you. see him working out the, the morning before. He's the muscle. Um, yeah, and they even later in the scene where he tries to get Brittany to like blow him in the woods, he <laughs> essentially like threatens to beat and blackmail Brittany if she doesn't do it. And then seemingly is going to rape her. But he won't even bring up to Bug that his sister is who uh, is bossing him around. Like, he won't he won't cross that line. He won't cross that line for... Uh, and another major plot convenience, I'm going to just bring up real quick so we can get back to Leah and Fang, is that the only reason the Ripper has a costume is so that the audience doesn't know who the killer is. Oh, yeah. Because there's no justification. The killer, Abel, kills people as Abel. Even yeah. when I show the security video, he is just wearing a hood and sweatshirt. And, um, and then the Ripper puppet, which is made by Jay, it just isn't based off anything. Like, they, like, they have, like, legends, no. but it's, like, it's, it has, there's no justification for it. Um, when... It kind of reminded me of some of the orcs... From Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> Because it's got it's got that white face with the long black hair. It reminded me of those orcs that are like coming out of the earth and then they put the white handprint on their head. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah, you're right. Well, and that's another thing too, is it looks like a big monster and the whole time it's Alex. It's like a five foot five. Oh yeah, boy. he's so short. And so the costume 
also hides that reality too. Yeah. It's just a big lie. It's a lazy He's lie. He's like that... Tom Cruise height level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this thing is like seven feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. All it's tall enough where when Brittany dies and Alex kills Brittany, he lifts her off the ground and the shot that the camera shows is her feet dangling over her purse with just like fake blood pouring over her purse and her feet. Yeah. <laughs> like like her head is a grapefruit being just like juiced. Like it's like that. But how did he pick her up? Because again, he's so short. Yeah, well and also they even at the end, like when Bug is like you did it. And he's like, how could I have done it? I'm too small. <laughs> he even like points that out. And they never answer it. They draw attention to it and they don't even follow through with justifying it. Yeah. Alright, back to Fang. I think we should talk, then I guess we should talk about when they kind of like get into, when <laughs> Fang and Bug fight. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, okay. After... What do we even say? I feel like they need... I wish we could show the scene, because... It's just hilarious. It's, it's so funny. So, basically, within minutes of it being revealed to the audience that Fang is Leah, and Leah is Bug's sister, um, they... Leah, it's on his, this is his birthday, and so Leah brings him this big present, yes. and it's a wooden rocking chair, uh, a rocking horse, and... The... But it's the wooden rocking horse that Abel was making at the beginning of the movie before he goes crazy and kills everybody. Yeah. And so the the Jessica has... Which, how does Fang have that? Yeah. God, I'll just have to get that. <laughs> so I, I feel... We'll have to do just like a bonus section of all the other things. We I think at it. the end of this episode we're going to have to do a, uh, a quick compilation of all the rhetorical questions we ask during this podcast. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> But, um, so Fang goes upstairs because the mother, Jessica Hecht, yells at them and then she, like, hits Fang in the face. And Fang runs upstairs and she's like, fuck you, mom! And then she goes upstairs and Bug is like, what's wrong? And he's like, fuck you, Bug! <laughs> and then Bug is like, what did I do? Why do you hate me? And then Fang just, like, punches him in the face. She starts punching him in the face and then she groin kicks him and then she, she like, knees him she in the face. She beats the shit out of him. Yeah. Like, like, Tom Cruise beating up a henchman in Mission Impossible level beatdown. It's, it's crazy. It's so gratuitous. <laughs> and then... But also, within a few minutes of her beating the crap out of him, she reveals to him, oh, by the way, our father is that serial killer that you've been hearing about for the last 16 years. Yeah. And she tries to explain it, but there's no explanation for how Bug does not know. Yeah, other than just, like, everyone was just wanting to keep you innocent, which, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't hold up under any scrutiny. But, so, after she tells him this, she goes into her bedroom, and she still has the dollhouse that her father made for her that she yeah, hid even behind. Yeah, even though she's 19. She's 19. Uh, but so she grabs, she starts smashing it with an electric guitar. And uh, and they like, even, and I noticed this, this, this so stupid detail, but the art director or production designer, somebody put 
the the cover of London Calling, the Clash album, immediately behind her, where it's Joe Strummer smashing the guitar, which I don't know why. I don't know what they're trying to highlight there, but it just like it just made me furious to see that in the <laughs> background. But so she said smashing that. And then Bug grabs the rocking horse and comes in the room and smashes that too. And then all is forgiven. Yeah, and it's over. They're like then they're friends. They're the they're kind the once they smash the crap out of the toys that their dead serial killer father gave to them. They're best friends. They're a team. Um, they remember that they're brother and sister. Fang agrees to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> What? All sorts of stupid stuff. Oh, and real quickly, um, what's the deal with mirrors in this movie? I mean, it only happens twice, but two different times Bug looks in a mirror and one of his dead friends is like, Bug, (laughs) 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 coming for him. Listen to me. And as far as I know... Wait, one of his dead friends points from the mirror to a knife. Did they manifest the knife? That's what I thought too, but they kind of said that Alex put the knife there to make him think he was crazy, but he did have a hallucination of his dead friend in the mirror, so either he is crazy and he didn't see that, or she is a ghost and can come visit him. And she, I think it's because she loved Jesus. She, she can be in a mirror. Okay. So she can be in a mirror. But then why does Jay? Jay shows up in the mirror and he's like swimming through well, the mirror. Well, obviously Jay loved Jesus as well. Yeah. So Jesus. that's the lesson here, folks. Jesus equals mirror visions. And Jay obeys the law because he spits off the bridge. Yeah. Because remember when he's, he's like, my grandma always said, you spit out over the bridge and then the river won't get you. Which, again, what is that based off of? They don't give us a face It's, it's the, river logic, there's, Carlo. There's so much, like, folk logic that the characters have in this movie where they're just basic stuff off of nothing. But Jay says, Jay says that, and then when he's crossing the bridge, he does it. And then the Ripper starts chasing after him, and he's seriously yelling, like, I spit! I spit off the bridge! Like, that's <laughs> gonna stop it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, why doesn't... That, so, that Haitian woman at the beginning, she said, oh, my grandma said, you know, multiple souls. But then she her, she didn't learn anything else from her grandma about multiple souls? Well, and remember, when they're talking 16 years later, she's like, I've gotten a lot more scientific since then. He's like, well, I've gotten a lot more superstitious and so like she basically just like stopped believing in her uh her in west craven's idea of what asian culture is the the police work has turned her scientific and actually thinking of her because she gets her throat slit and then she survives it how many people get their throat slit in this movie uh one two three four well there's at least six yeah at least six Throat slittings. Ooh, and that sounds like it was hard to say. Six throat slittings. It's six throat slittings. Another thing with the killer, the Ripper. The Ripper, essentially, as a killer, has no personality. Because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, he has a personality in the beginning, and then after that he just kind of yells stuff. But it's this is a Wes Craven thing, for sure. The killer, when he's just talking, because he doesn't say plot, he doesn't set up anything, he's just but he still talks for some reason. Yeah. Um, he says things like, fuck you, fucking fucker! Or what the exact line he says to Brandon after he stabs him is, fuck your fucking unborn child. Where's your fucking bitch? Which is like so hateful. I know he's a serial killer, but come on. Well, and again, 
If you pay any attention to the movie, you can figure out who the killer is almost right away. Yeah. Like, they're at the very beginning of the movie after Jay dies, Alex is seen uh, soaking wet, climbing into his bed. Um, also, Alex is earlier in the movie teaches Bug how to swear. And then the killer ends up saying things like, fuck your fucking unborn fucking child. So there's, you know, clue number two. It's so easy and blatant to figure out who the killer is. There's almost no mystery. The The only mystery is if the movie is going to keep screwing you like it has for the last, you know, however long you've been watching it. I wanted to bring up the fact that in in the opening scene... Uh, there's the whole, there's, there's just so many little details I gotta mention. Okay. The, in the security camera footage, they zoom in on his knife yeah. and vengeance is carved in and it's like a Blade Runner type, like super advanced <laughs> camera. I, I, like, there's no way that they could have done it, it, it. They even say in the news report, you pointed out that they can't make out his face. They can't <laughs> Yeah, they can't face. make out his face, but they can make out the word that is inscribed on his knife. On a blade. Yeah. Um, and so, after... Okay, so during um, the scene where they're trying to kill Abel initially, uh, right when he goes to... He kills this, like, crazy psych- psychologist character that's only really there to be a body. That, by the way, that guy is famous. <laughs> Who is that guy? Oh, man, I... Look it up real quick. Um, I'm gonna look it up. But, um, so, he's, he kills the psychologist, he's about to kill the Haitian cop, and the main cop shoots him in the head real quick and says, that's for shut the fuck up. Which has, is so terrible. It's such a terrible line. Ugh. They, um, they get able subdued after shooting him in the head and shooting him in the gut a bunch of times they have him su- subdued <laughs> and they get in the ambulance they drive they're driving to the ambulance through this like backwoods dirt road it's not even a paved road they're driving to the hospital on and, and that's when uh he like gets loose someone gets a knife slits the haitian woman's throat the ambulance does like a like a you know that in Die Hard 4 where the police car flies up in the air and hits the helicopter? It's like that. The ambulance like flies up in the air and flips over. Um, I don't know what it hit. It was on the, the woods. The worst possible ambulance driver. He's um, like, what? I'm driving an ambulance? I shouldn't look in the back of the ambulance? Also, when you're in an ambulance, I, I've been in an ambulance once, but I'm pretty sure that there's a barrier between the front of the truck and the back of the truck so that the driver isn't distracted by what's going on in the back of the truck. Yeah. So the whole scenario is is impossible anyway. But I mean, e- that's the thing with this movie is even if you can suspend belief to believe the plot that is being put forward, the plot that is being put forward is illogical by its own logic. Yeah. Okay, and, and to continue that, so once the ambulance crashes... Um, they and they they see that the serial killer who they've just seen witness murder a bunch of people has seemingly like escaped. It, his his is um yeah. the stretcher is like bloody and down by the river and he's not in it and he's nowhere to be found. The ambulance explodes, killing killing the driver and just the whole thing explodes like in one fireball that somehow just emanates from the entirety of the <laughs> But um the 
the key thing I'm trying to get to here is that 16 years later, that ambulance is still there. Yeah. You can still read the words on the side of the ambulance. No one secured a crime scene in 16 years, a crime scene that a serial killer, the town's most famous serial killer, uh, probably their only serial killer, escaped from. He was there, and everyone believes he basically got away. And they didn't—they didn't secure it. They didn't they, find his they body. Didn't take it in for evidence. <laughs> they didn't find his body. They just—and they even keep talking about like, man, why do these kids keep doing this Ripper Day thing? Or this got to stop? But they won't even clean up the evidence of the crime. It's still there. Maybe they have a very limited budget in that police department. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> they don't have a tow truck. They can't afford to do They're that. They're like, you know what? This seems like a lot of work. Maybe we can just leave it here and, and build a playground nearby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my question for the movie for, for Wes Craven. Wes, you've got these characters, these seven characters, celebrating the night before their birthday. By having a bonfire near this abandoned ambulance where the serial killer, uh, you know, evaporated. Who started this tradition? Was it other high school students? Did they start it the year after the first anniversary of the serial killer? Or did these seven kids start the tradition, tradition... Like, seven years before. Well, they say they were the people... Because they say, like, we were born on this day, and each year one of us has to go and to the river to... Protect the pr town. Protect the town. Uh, and so, and now it's Bug's turn. He's the only one who hasn't gone. And so, they're all 16. So, that means, presumably, what? they uh, The first one, when the first time they did it, well, they were nine or ten. Yeah, what nine-year-old's like, yes, everybody, I'm going to go down to the river and fight a serial killer. And it's not like it's just the seven of them, where it's like they were friends as kids and they met up and did this. There's a crowd. There's like yeah, it's 30 like people there. Yeah, it's like them. their whole high school graduating class. And people are that. like, do it, Bug. Do it. They're like cheering <laughs> them on. Save us, Bug. Yeah. Save <laughs> us. So they know about it. And um, and all these people, presumably, know that Bug is the son of the murderer, too. <laughs> all of them. Ah, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, why didn't somebody in the audience yell, Go find your dad! Hey, hey Bug, I hope you find your dad! Anything, yeah. Alright, um, any last little things that you want to bring up? Any other... Uh, Okay. Let me look over my notes. Well, real quick, I just have two really short things that I, I want to mention. Um, early on, at um, at Alex's house, when he's watching the birds before going to school, during the four-hour daybreak, he has a. I noticed he had a poster on his wall that says, Welcome to the Future, and it's just like the plunger part of a urinal on it. And that's it. That's the whole poster. I, I, that poster, and it's, it's in the You movie. were all about the poster. I was like, just really paying attention to the background stuff, because I've... Notice there's like a lot of stupid shit that happens in the background of these movies. <laughs> but that, that drove me crazy. And the other obscure background thing was that 
Bug. Our character is named Bug, and it seems like that's his name. It's not his nickname. His no, mom. his name is Adam. His name is Adam. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, because the principal calls him Adam. That's right. Well, Sorry, I just remember that. But the reason I'm so obsessed with him being called Bug is because he had a shirt that had frogs on it that were all pointing at his head. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept thinking it was like that intentional. Oh, yeah, and on his wall there were, fo- there were posters of... Uh, frogs and scientific uh, drawings of bugs. Yeah, and, and there's definitely a condor poster. Oh, definitely. Too, and an eagle. Yeah. Well, and that's the other weird thing is there's so much condor set up when it seems like he chose the condor at whim based on that in that NPR interview he was listening. No, because they said before he listened to that that it was a, the, the condor thing was due the next day. But even so, yeah, there, there's no reason he picked it. There's no reason he likes condors other than people just keep talking about condors. Or that he waited until the last minute. And the condor stuff doesn't deepen the story. It just is. It's like it's like if you put a parallel line on top of another parallel line. It's just like, <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Is the parallel line thing I said doesn't make any sense, but no, it you, know makes what, sense. you know what I mean. Yeah. So there are seven of them that are born on the day that the serial killer died. Isn't seven supposed to be a lucky number? Yeah. <laughs> seven days a week. Why didn't he pick like six or eight? I think it's just because that's how many were born. I think that's supposed to be okay. just like a total coincidence thing. That's, like, the least of the problems. Also, I thought it was weird, uh, again, going back to the fact that no one noticed that Jay was missing, even though it was his birthday. And it doesn't seem like their high school classes were that big. So you, you, you'd imagine that they would notice if Jay was missing. Yeah. But the reason I also bring that up is because when he does the condor presentation... Everyone who shares his birthday is in that classroom. He is in class with everyone that he shares a birthday with. So, uh, presumably, his high school class is about, like, 25 people. And so, if one of them was missing, don't you think they would notice? You'd think, yeah. Did Jay not have to do a presentation? Yeah, fuck Jay, I guess. <laughs> also, did... I, I mean, this is, uh, I guess, I could be wrong here, but you're a girl. If a blind person walked into the girl's bathroom, would you freak out? Uh... Well, okay, here's the thing that, uh... Here's the thing. In a women's bathroom, there are these things called stalls. Mm-hmm. So, when you're doing your business as a lady, you're in the stall. You can't see anything that's happening in the bathroom. So, if a blind person walked in and I was in the stall, I really would have no idea. Yeah, like, he doesn't, he's not, the point, the The problem with a guy walking into a bathroom. The only thing that he would catch me doing is washing my hands, and I'm fully clothed when I'm washing my hands. Your hands sound nice. (laughs) It's like, well, (laughs) it's creepy as it's gonna get, or he could, like, tap you with his cane, but he's blind. (laughs) You win. You can get away. Yeah. You could be naked in there. He wouldn't know. Yeah, unless he was was touching, yeah. Okay. I thought of something else that I want to talk about. When the principal is talking to the mom, the principal says to Bug's mom, 
it is my legal right to do this. And what he's talking about is he is going to commit Bug to a psychiatric treatment center. Also, another thing that doesn't pay off at all. Yeah, but, okay, I know for a fact that not only as a principal can you not make medical recommendations, but as a teacher you can't even make medical recommendations. My uh, dad is in the education system, and... That is a huge, huge thing right now. You can't, as a teacher, even vaguely reference that a child might have a medical issue because you can get sued or, uh, you know, that people can really screw with you. I remember, um, well, I, I won't go into that. <laughs> I was going to tell Relevant my, story. I yeah. was going to tell my story, but I won't. Um. <laughs> But you, you can't do that. You can't, as a principal, say, I think I know what's best for your son, so I'm going to take him to a mental hospital. Yeah. You can't do that. That's not possible. <laughs> I mean, again, it goes back to what I was saying, where the logic of the movie doesn't even follow its own logic. I just realized, too, he says that to a, ner a doctor. The yeah, woman he's yeah. Nurse and doctor. she's the head nurse of the OBGYN unit. She or doesn't whatever. call him on it. She's like, "Well, I, I can't believe this is gonna happen." You're you're a principal and you're an authority, so you must be right. I don't like it, but law is the law. Yeah, how did she not notice that her faux son is having some mental problems? Yeah, he's having six different souls try to enter his body. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think being in close proximity to those souls made him a little crazier? He's like, oh, I can feel... It's almost like a horcrux where he can feel that part of his soul in another body. Yeah. And he feels drawn to them, but he can't do anything about putting it into his body. <laughs> so maybe Wes Craven read the Harry Potter books, and then he also watched Nightmare on Elm Street for kicks... And he was like, horcruxes, nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Would not surprise me. <laughs> the timing works out on that theory, so. Yeah, because 2010, when was the last Harry Potter book? You would know. Uh, 2008, I think. Yes. 2008 or 2007, so yeah. There you go. Little Man, cheater. that little cheater. All right, I think that's it. Final thoughts. Um. Oh, also, <laughs> so you're much. you're gonna have to supercut some of this stuff back together. Yeah. But so, when Bug finds out that from Fang that their dad is the serial killer, Fang, before telling him, says. Um, don't you remember what mom said about dad? And Bug says, Mom said that he loved us very much. Does that mean that Bug never asked anything else about his dad other than he was loved? Yeah. Well, also, actually, now that you bring that up, um, Bug never asked 
never found out that he was adopted until that moment. <laughs> and his sister knew he was adopted. He and had... presumably everybody in town knew that he was adopted because everyone knew he was a serial killer's son. And it never came up that he was adopted before Man, that moment. Bug had quite a 16th birthday. Yeah. He really learned a lot about himself. You could say that he got to know his soul. I was going to try to make a soul asylum joke and I really could not figure it out. Those are my moo noises. Well, moo noise suggests that we have we have reached the limit on something we talked about in this movie. So I guess uh, what's your concluding statement, Carrie? My concluding statement is even though this movie is rather fun to watch because it is so ridiculous... It's also infuriating. It reminds me a lot of other movies where the movie is trying to be entertaining, but the logic logic that dictates the movie is so distracting from the entertainment. Yeah. it's. I'd say it's a great movie to riff on. Um, yeah. And if you're going to use it as an educational tool, it's a perfect example of how not to write a screenplay. There's so <laughs> many lessons you can teach, scene by scene practically. Uh, also editing. Uh, how not to edit a movie. Yeah, how but that not is, to edit But that is impossible to get into <laughs> right now uh, after this, at this point. So I this, think we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, come back next time. Uh, hope to have you listening. Bye. Bye. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Corone. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paoloerasmus. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.